So for the cultivation of samadhi is different than some of the other types of meditative practices. And one of the things is that it's, there's a curve of practices. In order to get into this, preliminaries have to be done. And samadhi results from the right causes having been put in. And one of these causes is confidence itself. And there's two kinds of confidence. One is confidence in the Dhamma, in the legitimacy of this, this whole idea that there's a special and supernormal condition that humans can enter into. So confidence in the, in the reality of that and confidence in yourself. This confidence is not something like, I can do this. And it most definitely should not be, I cannot do this. The confidence is enough sort of faith to set aside your opinions about whether you can or cannot do this and have confidence in the idea that a human can do this and that if the right causes are put in, then this will be the results. And this is not just a mystical or random thing, that there's causal processes. And it's not a good idea to have particular opinions about our own potentials, because if we look at the experiences in the suttas, we see time and time again stories of how people completely misestimated their own capacities. This happens in ordinary life as well. Somebody thinks you're going to go off to university and they just cannot do it and they turn out they do it very well. And the opposite as well. They think they're very confident they can do it. Turns out, no, can't. So one should just set aside opinions about this. It's a bit of a waste of time trying to predict or evaluate yourself. To some degree, uh, the very fact that you're here in a sort of karmic sense means that you're here for a reason. You wouldn't be here otherwise. So there's potentials there. And these things can come together in a certain kind of unpredictable time frame. So all we can do then is just put in the best causes. And the causes are nicely explained by the Buddha. The first is the external factors. So we have good external factors here. And then again, encouragement, the voice of another, that would be me. <laughs> and the right kind of prescriptions and descriptions of what it is we're trying to do. So my kind of approach to this is to try to talk you into it or give you scenarios that help you talk yourself into it. And the first one is that this is the best gift you could give yourself. Sometimes people have reactions about if I suggest that they give themselves gifts and everything. Uh, there's a certain cultural belief that you're supposed to give gifts to everybody and forget yourself. But 
in this case, this samadhi thing, nobody else can give you this gift and you can't give it to anybody else. So guess what? Only you can give it to yourself and it's the best gift you could give. So it's also the best because it's the preliminary conditions for irreversible well-being. And I'm talking about emotional well-being. And that is what we might call enlightenment. This samadhi actually spills over and invades the territory of the enlightened mind. So a person does not have to be enlightened to have equivalent kind of experiences of the enlightened person. Unfortunately, it's, it tends to be temporary if the deeper elements of our misunderstandings have not been uprooted, we can regress. So the nature of enlightenment is non-regression. There is no regression from enlightenment. Samadhi is more or less a temporary condition of enlightenment. You're experiencing some of the enlightenment factors, but it's not immune from regression. But that's very beautiful, the idea. It's very tempting to have a taste of this. And this is the, the way to think about it is, is to understand and appreciate what it is to be humane. This is the highest act of humanity towards oneself. And to encourage others is a great act of humanity to encourage these things. Because humans, it's very easy for humans to be inhumane to themselves and to others as well. If we look at the history of the planet, we see that it is a rather uh, desolate what people do to each other and what people do to themselves is, is alarming. And because you're humans, you may, you should have some alarm bells in you. <laughs> you should say, I, I could, you know, I might, uh, I might be a little rough on myself from time to time. Also, I may be undervaluing my life, undervaluing the possibilities of, of my experience. I am shooting too low. So this is, this is what I mean by being fully humane is to shoot high. This is what the Buddha is doing. So he's an example of a remarkable event in Earth's history. Why, do we, why are we even talking about it? It's 2,500 years ago, and we're still talking about this event. What is this event? A man makes a breakthrough. And then he spends the rest of his life trying to explain what that breakthrough revealed to him and how it affects others. So it's a breakthrough to a, an extraordinary level of humanity is what it is, a sudden light, a pronouncement, which is we we're just more or less catching up now, 2,500 years ago, to this idea. He's, he's advocating, he's had this breakthrough vision, and he's saying, you know, you really should stop this killing each other, <laughs> all this killing stuff. And, 
and also even even for animals and you know that there is there are other ways of functioning in life there are positive emotions and they get things done and that's how you should function and those other negative painful problematic emotions they're not absolutely necessary you really can undo these things that's a very very modern message we're still just beginning to hear that kind of talk imagine this being in the 5th century BC the breakthrough is extraordinary i think he understood it was extraordinary too and i don't think he expected it to really be fully appreciated at the time but he's in for the long game he talks in terms of millennia thousands of years is a very unusual thing to be talking that expecting the impact of his ideas and so forth to be ranging out for thousands of years transforming people and so he's very into a kind of a sense of causality though he knows when you drop this little element into human consciousness it starts to spread and that it's so valuable that it will be preserved as well he understands that once people begin to experience it themselves they will not ignore it it will not fade away on them they will maintain it to their dying breath and they will spontaneously make efforts to share it because it's uh, so positive he doesn't have to enforce that idea of sharing there's no punishment for not sharing because of the benefits that come to you you will just naturally share it as you can so we need to find out what he's talking about and if we if we just of course there are le- there are levels of benefit along the way just to straighten out our behavior and start speaking in a more orderly fashion or behaving in a more orderly fashion or maybe giving up outlandish drinking habits or something like this you know a, a vast shift in the quality of life can occur for people and they talk about it and have transformative experiences but those are benefits of the path but the these are once we start we're talking about this samadhi the jhanas these are again higher fruits of the path and this is in the top last three factors of the path this is the higher mind so this is the beautifully anticipatory event of the buddha having been a sensitive type and understood the shallowness of a purely materialistic existence as as a royal prince with all the sensory happinesses available to him finding it as many people who are sensitive and intelligent do that it's a bit shallow is that all there is so he goes in search of something sets that aside and says you know i i there's got to be more to it than that he goes into descriptions about the kind of the level of food that was served at the palace and all this kind of stuff and even the servants had this high quality beautiful kind of food and everything but it's just just so what he's got the the glimpse he see he's had the he's had the vision and the vision is 
the reality of uncertainty of just it all passes away and you die. And that's just, he can't let go of that. He can't forget that. It's always with him. It's weighing on him. He can't unsee it. That's that existential vision that some portion of the population has and other portions of the population apparently don't. <laughs> but it's there and he's willing to try very hard and he does. In fact, he falls in with a, with a crew that tries too hard in the wrong way and uh, is extremely painful and exhausting kind of practices. So the jhana factor just comes up just at the end of that period when he finally becomes humane. This is, this is the beauty of the, the Buddha is a grand human. And he has enough human sense to see the shallowness of the trivial life of indulgence and also to be kind enough to himself and humane enough to himself not to indulge in extraordinary painful practices which cannot be what he is aiming for. He doesn't know quite what he's aiming for. He's not enlightened yet, but he knows by his intuition about goodness and humanity that that can't be the way. These are these super austere, harsh practices. So he abandons them all and goes to that beautiful place on the river under the banyan tree. Now that's something, you know, you need to use these stories for your own well-being as well. That You also have to give up these either shallow things and painful things because you have a humane heart and you're actually, that's actually active in you and it's guiding you. So you're going to stop those kind of practices and find relief. So the samadhi is relief. He finds this nice cool forest, a shady forest with the breeze blowing across the river. It's very nice. He also eats and treats his body in an appropriate fashion. And right away, you can imagine there would be a, a certain amount of joy instantly come up in that, just the feeling of that all of your nature as a human kind of rejoices in that choice. And it's very soon that the samadhi for him appears. And he, he says that the experience, the pleasurable experience of this, uh, that this type of pleasure is not to be feared. It's not a shallow pleasure. It's not a mere sensory pleasure. It's something very beautiful and not 
not something that should be concerned about or doesn't lead you into shallowness or or into pain either. So it's something that should be welcomed in. And he feels he's on the right track. And so when you do this kind of practice also, when your mind settles in and the problematic emotional structures, mental structures start to subside, you're already approaching this kind of an oasis. You're, you're actually approaching this, the banks of the Naranja River to this shady, beautiful spot. And there's two parts. One is the negative aspects, the, the five hindrances, and as they subside, it's not necessarily that you're that you instantly have the jhana factors, but they can be there in a weak form. And even in their weak form, the absence of, the, of worry and hostility, anger, irritation, all these unsatisfactory psychic irritants, the, the mere absence of them is a blessing. When you experience even a neutral feeling, which follows a painful feeling, is experienced as pleasant. The jhana factors, though, you must ask for lots uh, from that. The pleasure is can be remarkable, and you should aspire to that and inquire into that and expect that if you enter into this wholeheartedly, which is one of the jhana factors, and you are absorbed, which is another way to talk about being wholehearted, then uh, just to the degree that you're all in is the degree that the jhana factors will be complete. So this is like a relationship, you know, a love relationship. All kinds of different love relationships. Your love, a child, to a parent, or between lovers, or between, you know, friends. Just to the degree that you are able to love, then the relationship is rewarding. People are often not, they, they don't appear to understand what it is to commit to a relationship. And if they can't commit to that, just to the degree that they, they do not, they will experience this lack of satisfactory relationship. When the commitment is wholehearted and complete, then it's intensely beautiful. And without that, it's not. Well, you could be halfway in, and it's not bad. <laughs> but if you're all the way in, it's wonderful. For some people, it seems to appear that they're, they are in love with humanity. And they're all the way in love with humanity. And they get the rewards of that. And then on the other end of the spectrum are people who are not, they don't seem to have any connection with humanity. 
and they will get the, the opposite of the reward. And then there are people who are dabbling, <laughs> dabbling in goodwill, <laughs> dabbling in their identity with humanity and with all living beings. And just to the degree and when it arises, they will feel the, the beauty and the rewards of that. So this, this jhana is, is available, but you, you can't be halfway in. You can't be. This is the fifth factor. This is the ekagata, the one. It is union. It is absorption. I mean, we have a whole culture that is more or less multitasking and dabbling in things and flitting from thing to thing. And so part of our mind gets distorted and it it's, finds it difficult to be fully present, engaged, in love with the thing. So this is uh, when people talk about, I love music or I love literature or I love something. That's the kind of language that we're talking about here is that it's a, it's a restorative. It's a, it gives you the sense of true health, you know, the health of the heart, the health of the emotions, the health that makes it all worthwhile. But you can't have it if you dabble. And this is not, this is not hard work. You, you got to reference things in your life where, where it's been easy to, to love and to forget everything else. That wasn't hard work. That was the best thing you've ever done. So this is, this is also, this is a, an experience of the heart. Samadhi is not a, an exercise of the mind. It's not a laser beam that comes out of your forehead. This is an immersion in a whole body immersion, a whole mind, a whole hearted immersion. And in order to do that, we just have to get very interested. We don't have anything else to do. We, we're here for a couple of weeks, so you really don't have anything else to do. The past, eh, whatever. The future, it'll take care of itself. This is something you have just a beautiful opportunity to, to immerse yourself in. And, you know, after the retreat's over and you go back, you, you'll think, oh, right, I've got to pay the gas bill. Yeah, right, of course. And whatever, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> Trust yourself. <laughs> you'll take care of things that you have to. And the past is, you don't have to work it out. I mean, lots of people spend a lot of time working on things from the past and wanting to redo it or etc. This is something that we most definitely should not be doing now. <laughs> it's not going to get you there. Except in this kind of like story form, the, the story of the Buddha doing the same thing, just he had to leave the past behind. 
The past can't enter into the jhana. It's the suspension of that kind of process that you can't be partly here and partly in your memories into the past. You can't be partly planning. Sometimes we, we even feel it's kind of dangerous to do that. It feels like, am I allowed to do that? <laughs> you do it every night when you go to sleep. You're helpless, vulnerable, and unconscious. <laughs> there is no past, no future. And you do it because it's restorative. And you can't live properly, you can't function properly if you don't do that. You must abandon your hyper-protective consciousness, that wandering, inquiring, and fearing type of consciousness in order to go to sleep. But it is also to go into the, to the jhanas, which is also equally restorative. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't make it so extreme that it's unattainable. And this is what my, in my, you know, time exploring this, in my early days, alone in a shack with the Visuddhimagga, it's very easy to get misled by such texts, which in fact is still misleading a lot of people, <laughs> by making the jhanas absolutely something like winning the lottery. It's not like winning the lottery. It's accessible. It's possible. And there's all kinds of cultural reasons why at different times in history these samadhi states and jhana have been made very remote and difficult or explained as very remote and difficult. And other times, of course, they can be undervalued as they should be understood that it is definitely not what the normal person experiences, but that, that the normal person has had glimpses of equivalent emotional states, that in your ordinary life you have had times of joy and oneness. And that's why I bring up the idea of relationships, because somewhere in most, well, maybe, I don't even know whether it's most people, but a substantial portion of the population knows what it is to, to feel love and to, and to be really committed to another person. You feel as an extension of yourself in some ways, that you care about them as much as you do about yourself. So this is um, something that one experiences from time to time. These, even that kind of thing may fade and everything. But those are the richest experiences in life. And there are encounters with ideas and inspirational visions, which other people have shared with you and so forth, that are also have transported you into that Realm. So those are the emotions. You have experienced them, and it's very important that we refer to those things because this can't be something utterly strange. The jhana factors, the experience of this, can't be strange to the human experience 
it is experienced by humans, but it's for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and it's only the wrong reasons because the the Buddha wants to extract the, the beauty of the experience from having to be so dependent on situations, external situations, the right person, the right situation, the right idea is too precarious and it's fraught with the potential of great loss as well. It's fraught with the potential of pain. He wants you to celebrate the best of the human heart. He's just so eager to communicate that. He keeps explaining it to people, how the best moments of their life are glimpses of what could be. And that he, he says, but you need to secure that in a much more uh, much less precarious way. You can't, it can't just be out in the world, out of your grasp. You have to find it within yourself and it has to well up. And you have to find how it wells up in you. So that is the, that's the procedure. That's where we're going into this. And so, you know, in, in this practice, you, you need to go into your memory a little bit and just say, what were the more beautiful experiences of my life? What was that like when the heart was full? That's what I'm trying to do here. Now, how can I bring that up in me, but independently of the, of the external factors? How, how does this going to well up? And this is the, the simile the Buddha uses. Is, this is like a, a mountain lake which has no rivers flowing into it and yet is very cool and pure because it has a, a uh, source of water welling up from the earth. And so that's, it's not from the outside, it's from the inside. And you also have that possibility, but you can easily go through all of your life without ever blundering across it. So this is like a good chance to kind of you, you feel around for this until you get this little spring bubbling up. And now we have a chance to, uh, and you know, people blunder across this in certain conditions where the spring bubbles up, but it's often thought that a mystical experience happened, that it was something to do with the place they were in, or an angel touched them, or something like this. It's not. So we have to learn... We have to get this to happen, and then the next job is to happen again, <laughs> and then to sustain the happening, and then to get adept at coming back to this. Well, we won't worry about what about after that. We don't need to worry about that. We just need to get the experience. And quite often in uh, Buddhist circles and meditation circles, uh, they can often ruin that <laughs> the whole experience by trying to downplay the significance or how it's going to serve other purposes, etc. So they, they often interfere with, with the whole process. So this is for its own sake. And the Buddha endlessly praises it 
and says that, you know, don't worry too much. It is a source of further beauty as well. It will lead you places. You just trust it. So this is just uh, our opening period. Now, again, and if you've been on retreats with me before, I, I make sure that you understand that the first few days, at least, you are not trying to get too still right away, but trying to bring some joy and energy up. Joy and energy has to be there first. You need to enjoy yourself. Not try to be too strict with yourself, not... Not try to focus too hard, but more or less to smile, you know, smile it into existence and stay with lighter, the lighter, more joyful feeling. That has to take place first before you can trust yourself to allow this kind of serenity to take over. Otherwise, uh, you'll get sleepy instead. You'll just get sleepy and dull <laughs> and cloudy and foggy and you don't want to do that you want to bring joy and and some energy and and that kind of feeling up first and then it can turn naturally into a into a beautiful but energized serenity as well so that's the the mission for the first few days of the retreat is to stay light active and also it's good to go out and get some light in your eyes as well outside a little bit of fresh air walk back and forth and we're setting up just good conditions for the arrival of this situation just doing some spring cleaning and then you'll be very happy and then you can sit on the porch and in a rocking chair and just enjoy